for me, less and less discipline, perhaps. So what I, I first had to unlearn the, the, I think, the scientific mode of writing, uh, because I was trained in that, writing journal articles and writing a PhD thesis and so on. And there is a certain structure and style uh, that's not yours. So for me, it's, it's really finding your own style, your own way of thinking, writing, and so on, but also feeling comfortable in, in doing that way. So in that sense, every new book has been easier than the ones before. So you say many, many books. It's also not that many. Uh, it's, it's a handful, basically, um, with some variations. The main work still is the Strategy Handbook, which is the longest book I've written. That required a lot of discipline. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Hello, today we're talking to Yeroon. Yeroon, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself and tell us exactly how you pronounce your name and tell us where you're sitting today and who makes up your family. Thank you, Jules. That's a lot of questions. You, <laughs> how do you pronounce my name? That's probably the question I get most. It's Yeroon Krajenbrink. So you did you did very well and we haven't even practiced. Yeah, I'm sitting here at my home office. So this is basically the place also the background that most people see when they talk to me because I do a lot of work online remotely via Zoom as we do now. Um, my family is my wife and our two cats. Uh, so we live here together with uh, two cats who actually have their second birthday today. So they're still quite young <laughs> and active. And are you based in the Netherlands? Yes. Yeah, in a small town in the Netherlands. But the Netherlands is small anyway. Have you always lived in the in the Netherlands? No, not always. Most definitely most of my life, but I've lived we've lived 5 years in Germany, not that far from the Netherlands, but like a 30 40 kilometers from the border uh, just to experience how that part of the border was. And do you travel a lot um or obviously pre-covid? Uh, Pre-COVID, yes. Post-COVID, no. Not for COVID reasons, but more for, I think, for time reasons and climate reasons. So I try to limit my, my traveling. So I'm working a lot internationally, but virtually everything is remotely. And I also, I've, I've, I've traveled a lot. And now, if you look at it from a, from a carbon perspective, too much. Uh, especially for work, but yeah, I think I'm now at a phase where I don't have to, and I'd rather uh, work from here. Do you find since the pandemic that people are just a whole lot more able to make virtual work? Uh, they're more willing to make virtual relationships and virtual connections work? Oh, yes. Like, a, I don't know, complete shift. And maybe also because before COVID, I was already preparing a bit for that, uh, doing some more work remotely. But since COVID, I think the openness to do th things, also when when you're even in the same country, uh, in a tiny country as the Netherlands, uh, even if like if it's not a one hour drive, it's much more accepted now to, to do things via Teams or Zoom and so, and so on. 
But for me, this has really opened up my world, basically, business-wise. Because before COVID, I mainly worked with companies here in the Netherlands. And now I mainly work with companies everywhere else. It's one of the benefits, isn't it, of something like a pandemic that forces that change on people, um, yeah. whether they liked it or not. And once you're in it, sometimes you find that actually the change wasn't that bad. Uh, it was something that you feared, but or you or you didn't think would work. But actually, once you're in it, you find that it was all, you know, it was all going to be OK. Yeah, and I, there's except for the health part, of course, but I think there were many more advantages we're packing our, our times again with too many activities while during COVID it was kind of okay and accepted to stay home and do nothing because there was nothing. I think that that part was pretty precious uh, during those two years. But yeah, we're animals of habit. So we moved back to what we did before and start traveling again and visiting everyone and, and filling our calendars with all kinds of appointments. So when you're working with with the organizations in different countries, do you find that you have to adjust um, your approach or do you find that, you know, um, much as your work in the Netherlands was characterized by kind of certain problems, certain challenges, certain techniques that would work, mm -hmm. they're much the same in different countries? Yeah, I, I expected it should be different um, because there's so many cultural differences and so on and so forth. But to be honest, I do exactly the same. And maybe the diversity of countries I've worked with and cultures I've worked with is not that big enough to really test that. But I've worked with people from in Europe, uh, definitely different countries, but also with the US, with Saudi Arabia, with China. I do the same with everyone. So I think we're much more a humankind. So one one breed of animals and of course, there's differences, but in terms of how you would like to interact, having someone to kind of pay attention, listen, um, people want to speak out, they want to contribute. I think that's very universal. So the way I work is I, I might adjust a little bit maybe, but hardly anything. So let's go back to your um, your career and your early career. Um, what was your first ever job? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that fits into the, the box of career, but I think it was 15, like the summer holiday um, job. I, I think the very first job was at a bank where I had to bring the coffee. There was still a time where they had someone bringing them the coffee rather than, than the machine and all kind of other kind of small activities like making sure all the paperwork was or the pa all paper was collected and, and and I actually liked it a lot because I had a lot of freedom there um, and it was kind of a unique role uh, not so in that sense now talking about it it probably was the start of my career because independence and doing something that the rest is not doing is probably still something that I uh, that I value very much so, so that's 30 years ago to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> and and presumably making lots of connections with people as you went around delivering coffee and and seeing different parts of the bank. Yeah, that's and then also 
like being part of it, but not really part of it. And that has always been also in my, in my role as a consultant, as a mentor, as a trainer. You are with the group and with the team and with the company, but not really part of them. And this kind of in-between situation is, I think, something I like, uh, I like to be at. That's very similar to my, you know, what I prefer as well that I've learned through time and experience and mm-hmm. scars, battle scars, is that, you know, I like, absolutely like being involved and helping organizations and helping teams, but I I don't like to sort of feel like I'm, I belong or I stick, I'm stuck inside and that. I like mm-hmm. to be able to move across different friendship groups or different organizations, different teams, different kinds of work. That's my sweet spot. You know, I belong to, you know, myself and, you know, something that I'm driving my own business. But if I feel like I've become too stuck in to an existing organism um, or organization, I lose my spark. Mm -hmm. Then we have that very much uh, in common. So from the bank um, at 15, presumably you went on to further education. Yes. Yeah. So I went to the university uh, or at that time I was still at high school. Uh, um, so university, uh, then did my PhD. And then my first career was basically in academia. Um, so I, I yeah, did my PhD, became an assistant professor, associate professor and so on. So that's. So really the first half of my career was at the university. And what did you like most about being at university? Yeah, again, I think it's the independence. Of course, you're part of a group, you're working at a department, but in terms of research, you're still quite independent. There's lots of rules on on how you should do your research and how you should publish. That's the part I didn't like. And also those were some of the reasons I left uh, in the end. Um. But yeah, I think the autonomy, the independence, also, especially the freedom to explore, to take a deep dive, to learn more, um, because that's still something I, I, I still do every day, um, but in a different way, in a different mode um, as, as, on the, as at the university. And traditionally in universities, you're incentivized to look for innovation um you know to explore things that others haven't explored or take things in a different direction um because obviously that brings more kudos back to the university if you can publish research or deliver um lecture programs on things that nobody else does or that are brand new um was that something that characterized your time i wish it had it was in the beginning uh, and I think especially when, you, when you're doing your PhD, you have all the room, at least let me, in my case, I had all the room to explore what I wanted, uh, still high ambitions to do it differently, uh, to change the world, uh, to, to come up with the next big idea, the big theory. Um, but my experience has been quite differently. Um, it's, it's a pretty conservative industry, risk averse. Um, so the best thing to do for a career is to stick to the rules, find ways to create publishable and citable articles. And that's not necessarily high risk innovation, um, new developments. Uh, So that's also one of the parts that I 
did not like as much as I thought in the beginning. And so you made the decision to leave academia. Um, where did you go? What did you do? Yeah, and I have never fully left. So I also want, don't want to give a, a very negative picture about the university because I still am involved with, uh, with the university uh, ever since. Uh, especially for mentoring students with their, their master assignments. And I've been teaching a lot until two years ago, especially in uh, in MBA programs, executive MBA programs. So I still like a lot of the stuff happening at the university, but not the strict system where it's like publish or perish. And the only key, key performance indicator is basically number of cited articles. So that's that's the part that's... I couldn't work. That didn't work for me. What I did was right out of. I had this the luxury of doing this in a kind of a fade in, fade out model, where I could reduce my contract at the university and at the same time started as an independent consultant. So with what I knew from the university uh, and what I thought of all the models, tools, and strategy that I that I taught. I, I started and tried to find my first customer uh, and say, hey, I can help you. I'm a consultant. Um, so that's what I did. That worked quite well. Uh, and that's what I still do part of part of the time. Um, I'm interested in your experience of starting as a consultant. Um, it's such a common story, isn't it? When you know that you can do something different and you have this sense of your own value that actually you can help clients, but getting that first client um, is often mm-hmm. something when I'm talking to people who are considering going into consulting, that is the thing that holds the biggest fear. Um, you know, once they've got the client, they know they'll be able to deliver. But it's that sort of mm. selling, you know, finding the first client and being able to, you know, really sell the value proposition that causes the most fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know whether there was fear in my case. Um, I, I think the, the 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 approach is is fake it until you make it, uh, and. Yeah, and then behave as if you're doing this for years already, and I think that's what I what I consciously or unconsciously did is okay. I am experienced. I know stuff about strategy. Uh, I I know this better than you. Uh, um, maybe just from a research theory teaching perspective, uh, I've not done this, um, but hey. I think I still think I know better than you. So I'm I'm a consultant. I can help you, and I think that has worked out, yeah, re- reasonably well. Um, and of course, you have to be a bit lucky with the first client that someone actually buys that you're saying this. Um, and I always, for a long time, I felt that my academic background was a disadvantage. I know that that's the difference between countries, by the way, where in some countries having a PhD. Is good uh, in other countries, and the Netherlands is one of them. Having a PhD is also like a, a stamp you're theoretical, non-practical. So that's something I felt for quite a while, and probably has also led to to this being very important for me to emphasize the practicality of my approaches because, yeah, I know where I come from in my uh, my my first career. I don't know whether that's a real answer to your question, but 
anyway I, yeah I'm a I'm a member of the fake it till you make it um school myself um so that resonates a lot I find it really interesting your reflection on um having that kind of research and theoretical background and whether that's a strength or a weakness um because for me personally one of the areas that I do a lot of consulting work um is change management um, mm -hmm. particularly in relation to you know big strategic shifts and then the people aspect of change management and I ha have um, developed or honed what I think are my skills in that area by practical application you know trial and error being in the thick of things doing them seeing what worked and what didn't work and then you know adjusting um and because of the personality that I am and the life I've led, I haven't had the time or the inclination to get a whole lot of theoretical um, kind of certifications, you know, and in change management, particularly in the last few years, not so much now, perhaps, there was a whole lot of emphasis on, have you got this certification? Are you trained in X? And I faced quite a lot of challenge, you know, in whether or not I was any good at change management or change leadership mm -hmm. because I didn't have this certification. And, and maybe that's the culture that I have been working in that has traditionally valued kind of mm -hmm. academic or, or certificate-based certificate learning over practical lived experience. Yeah, yeah recognize that quite a lot um i think it's not so much the academic background that people want but some certification or at least prove that you i think it's twofold one is the the coaches and consultants themselves to feel more confident that their that their intuitions their experience is valid they love it when there are models theories that basically depict what they have intuitively done i've seen that also with entrepreneurs uh, with with any type of person probably so the confirmation that your work is, that you're doing it the right way. Uh, on the other hand, also the certification, uh, the accreditation, at least some some diploma, some some something like that, which is exactly why, because I'm I'm still a consultant, but I'm at a stage where I try to leverage my expertise and help others do it. Uh, so one of the forms is training, the other is books and so on. But exactly what you're mentioning here is why we're actually right about to start a certification program for consultants. So a certified strategy and implementation consultant program um, exactly for that reason is because in, it's, it's really focused on people that are already experienced, but that lack this kind of, they lack the, the kind of the explicit tools, some of the theories and the certification or also the confirmation from someone like me who has been in the research and the teaching side and knows that's say the theoretical and the practical side that they are actually doing the right thing. So I think there's a real need for, uh, for that, uh, which is exactly why we created the program because I get these kind of questions. And I must confess that, um, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn, you're prolific uh, in the, the kind of guidance and the models that you publish on LinkedIn. Um, and a few months ago, I was facilitating a leadership um, a workshop with a group of leaders that I've been working with for a while. 
And I wanted to bring them to the point of understanding their role in strategic decision making as opposed to operational decision making, because that is something that has characterized their performance as a team as well as individuals. And it's not enough to deliver the outcomes that they want. Um, and so I went hunting for something that would resonate with that audience um, to bolster my message over, you know, over many, many sessions. And I found one of your models, which is around um, single loop, double loop and triple mm -hmm. loop learning. Um, mm -hmm. and I use that. Um, I had another model from from a, from somebody else as well. And I used both of them to to see which worked for this audience, which resonated. They kind of ended up in the same place but it was trying mm -hmm. to find the model that would stick in those people's minds. Um, and yours did, you know, it was like a light bulb going off. And I was thinking to myself, well, I've been talking about this for, you know, in different ways for, for many mm -hmm. sessions, um, but there was something about the simplicity of um, the, the picture that you had provided that, that really stuck. And by the way, I credited you, obviously. Um, <laughs> But it's exactly yeah. that, you know, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I knew the theory and I knew the practice, but what I didn't have was uh, a model depicted in a way that would resonate with this audience. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's trial and error with facilitation anyway, you know, um, depending on the day, depending on the group. Um, but uh, it was a real success story um, for you, um, as well as for me in terms of, you know, being the facilitation, facilitator of knowledge and facilitator mm -hmm. of tools and techniques that are going to really help somebody. So thank you. Yeah, so I'm glad it was useful. Let me also be clear about credits and that what I try to do in all the all the posts I write is that, of course, the whole idea of single, double and triple loop learning is not mine. That that's Argers and Schoen and then some others, and even the picture is it's also not fully original. Uh, so and that's how, but that's how I, how I typically work is take something, take a good idea, take a model, take something written developed by others, and then try to make it accessible for for a big group. Sometimes that's a minor change, sometimes it's a major change, but it's always this combination of. A picture, an illustration, a model that helps to that gives kind of an immediate insight, plus a comment with my viewpoint or like what to highlight. Because if you just dump a picture, that doesn't work. That's what I've also seen with because I'm you know, LinkedIn works quite well since less than a year actually. It's ever since it works <laughs> very well, but yeah, you, you you get a sense of what people need, how you can help them. I think that's kind of a nice, also for me, again, a nice sweet spot where I can still use like my, my researcher mindset. I can still bring new stuff to the table, but I'm not restricted by the, the, the limits of a scientific journal article. And it's certainly far less work and much more rewarding and much, 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 much more, much faster. Um, yeah, so I'm glad that that worked out for you. And I think what I get from the comments, it works for many, uh, many people in that way. You are very disciplined, it appears from the outside of your, you know, writing and your posting on platforms like LinkedIn, 
barely, you know, a week doesn't go by without you bringing something new to the table. Um, How do you actually do that? You know, you, you presumably you think of that as work, you schedule it into your work day, um, your work week. um, Mm -hmm. And do you know, do you plan ahead in terms of the kinds of topics you're going to cover over the next few months? Or does it, you know, is it about (laughs) what you're interested in that day? Yeah, no, it's it's discipline. So I have a discipline three a week, uh, always Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, same time. Uh, and that's kind of non-negotiable. Uh, I have to stick to that. I think, but it starts with, I really like doing this. Uh, if you do it for the followers to get the, the hits and so on, I, I think you, you can't do this. I, I really like this part of my work also because I've invested so much or i am am invested so much in in this that i can now reuse of let's say things i've been teaching like 15 years ago or stuff that i've seen 20 years ago um so i've created this huge repository of um, post ideas which are basically like bits and pieces of the presentations and, and lectures i've given but also to be frank i have barely touched that repository because there's so much popping up during a week. Um, and actually, just before our our, our conversation today, um, so it's it's like 8.30 now here, so I've had my dinner, and after dinner, I had some spare time. Um, I've written two or three of these posts in, in that time, because things pop up, I get inspired, and then I know I, I write them in one take, basically, and then it's done. So it's really much more, the only thing that's structural is the discipline. But for the rest, I do it very intuitively um, based on what pops up. Yeah, what I think is a, is a suitable topic. Think is even a big word. It's just what, what pops up and what I um, what I would like to write about at that time. And you are um, the author of many, many books. Um, I was, when I was doing research for this podcast, I was looking at your, uh, at Amazon, um, looking at the the sort of, I suppose the trajectory of your authorship um, with, you know, moving from the, the p- potentially the ones that focused more on models through to the handbooks and now the, the one hour strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that mirrors what you talked about earlier in the sense of moving much more to the practical, um, particularly with one hour strategy. Um, yeah. How how much discipline does it take actually to write a book and get from start to finish? For me, less and less discipline, perhaps. So what I, I first had to unlearn the, the, I think the scientific mode of writing, uh, because I was trained in that, writing journal articles and writing a PhD thesis and so on. And there is a certain structure and style uh, that's not yours. So for me, it's it's really finding your own style, your own way of thinking, writing, and so on, but also feeling comfortable in in doing that way. So in that sense, every new book has been easier than the ones before. So you say many, many books. It's also not that many. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a handful basically. Um, with some variations. The main work still is the strategy handbook, which is the longest book I've written. That required a lot of discipline uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a, long, uh, a long book. It required a lot of development. 
uh, the whole because that's that's also the book where I basically have developed the main approach to strategy that I still use in my teaching, my um, my consulting, and so on. So that that has been a pretty foundational book for me. Um, which there there and the way I wrote that at some point of time it's really block time um, sometimes a couple of weeks, sometimes a couple of days, uh, but also like writing before breakfast, uh, like every day, one or two hours, uh, get up early, write, have breakfast, and then do your ordinary work. For the um, the latest book, the one hour strategy, that went very differently, that, that basically it, it just came out. That's kind of the, the way it felt like I started writing. It's a short book, so it's also less work. Um, but I started writing and yeah, it basically wrote itself, and it's it's a cliche, um, but it it really worked like that. Is it for those who haven't read it? it it's a it's a it's a story. It's about Martin, so it's it's a, it's of course it's kind of fiction, but it's not a novel. I, I wouldn't call it a novel, but it's a nice story where through the eyes of Martin you see how a company does strategy in a in a new and innovative way. And as soon as I had kind of the the, the character there and of course i think a lot of subconscious work has gone before that up to the point where i felt like and now i know what the book should be about so i had a basic outline of the of the main chapters but very rough and it has changed and i basically started at page one uh and yeah ended at page 100 and made some some edits some more edits, um, but that but basically it. I mean, I think the the concept of the one hour strategy and the 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 having Martin kind of learning about it as he goes about his you know his life in the new company is such a humanizing approach to strategy um, mm -hmm. because quite often you know people think that strategy is something that other people do. Um, as opposed to thinking that it's something that you can em employ in, in all of your life, actually, um, mm -hmm. as well as your professional life. Um, so I really like that concept that you make it something that everybody can be part of, everybody can belong to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in two ways, and exactly the two ways that you mentioned. For me, and that's a little bit in the, the strategy handbook, but much more in the one hour strategy is strategy as a particip participative process or a collective sense making process is also what I sometimes call it, because I think you require everyone because strategy is probably one of the most complex things in a company by definition, because it it's integrative, it concerns marketing, sales, production, mar anything all of that needs to be connected. So it's a very complicated thing. And there's this kind of paradoxical or idea that you should you can do that with the top of the company, with just the executive board, just a few people. And I think it's much stronger for many reasons if you do it together with people, you get better strategy because you have more perspectives, you get better execution, smoother execution because people have been involved. You get better alignment because people hear what others are saying and you get competence development and people learn. They learn a bit about strategy. They learn to think strategically and look strategically at their job. So that's within uh, organizations where this is like a everyone's job. 
but as you, as you also mentioned, also outside the organization, you can you can apply some of the tools there just to your own private life, and that's actually what I what I try to do as well. So I, I practice as I preach, um, and I've also used that in quite often in um, in an executive MBA course. The last lecture where I basically argued everything that you've learned in this course, you can also apply to yourself, to your private life. So this one model uh, in, in, in my in the strategy handbook, it has 10 elements. It's called the strategy sketch in the one-hour strategy. It's a six-element model, the 6M model, but it's basically the same idea. You have a template or a canvas, as people like to call it, where you can make sense of your life, your organization, your department from a strategic point of view. And I think lots of the things that I currently do is by explicitly or implicitly applying that tool to my own career, to my own, to my own life. I'm, I'm not, so you asked in the beginning, what's your family? So it's, it's me and my wife, uh, my wife and I, let me say it in that order. Um, it's not that we sit on the kitchen table with that model and talk about uh, who is our customer and what's our revenue model and, and in terms of values and goals. But implicitly, it, it is guiding how we how we live our lives and how work and getting an income is part of that. Yeah, I mean, I I don't sit around the kitchen table with my um, partner um, using a canvas either, but we ha we have a similar approach, um, a much simpler model that I devised where um, you spend a bit of time as an individual or a group or, you know, with my consulting team uh, on looking at um, in the in the next 10 years, um, what do we want our lives to be like? Um, who do we want to be? How do we want to spend our time? What's the impact that we want to have? And then we say, well, what do we want to do? What do we want to be in the next few years and what do we mm -hmm. want to do in the next few months um and you do an initial exercise where you you kind of jot down all of those things and then you look for alignment um, and what you find quite often um as a as a team as a partnership or as an individual is that you have these aspirations for how you want to live your life and the impact that you want in 10 years but nothing in the next few months or the next few years is designed to get to you to that 10-year state mm -hmm. um and or you know most things are but you've got some big things that are actual distractors and so the question then that you ask is, do I still have to do those things, you know, or can I take mm -hmm. them off off the table? Um, if you put that in an organizational context, um, you know, there are uh, pieces of work that come up for my consulting business, for example, where, um, yes, we could do that work, but it takes us in the opposite direction to where we want to be and the values that we might hold as a as a team as a company mm -hmm. team and so you know it's a really big question every time is this something that is taking us towards where we want to be in 10 years time and we do that personally as well um you know mm -hmm. thinking about small life choices but also big life choices um it's such a simple method that can go across a whole range of different um, different contexts. But I find it really mm. valuable to go back and revisit and just sense check all the time that I'm not being dragged in the date into the day-to-day 
um, or the short termism um, of, you know, other people's wishes or other people's expectations um, mm -hmm. or just, you know, you get into habits and you find that actually, unless you step back and take a pause and look at the big picture, you don't break those habits, but they're not constructive habits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being a strategy person, I can't can't object to that. <laughs> Maybe one 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 addition is it doesn't require a crystal clear view on where you want to be in ten years or five years. So for me, strategy is much more like having this maybe vague idea, but more in terms of direction. You know where you in which direction you want to move. You don't have to express the endpoint. I've never done that. Uh, I, I I don't. I have no idea. But I do kind of know where I'm where I'm heading at and and then assess whether the things I do, whether they still contribute or whether I'd rather stop them and replace them by something else. And that's also the way I, I work with companies is you don't need a crystal clear picture of the future and you don't need smart objectives uh, that are very measurable and that there is an endpoint. It's not the endpoint that's important, but it's the direction. And because once you've started, the endpoint changes anyway. Uh, but you, at least you know which direction you're heading. And and yeah, as you said, that is also some, something I do privately. And that's how we make our decisions in what we want to do, what we do not want to do, what we want to stop, and so on. So I'm interested in your um your own decision making style then you know um how do you how how would you characterize your decision making style mm -hmm. I don't know whether there's a name for it um but it's it's gathering a lot of information sleep over it then decide so there's I think and this is not just just me but this is I think um neuroscientists show this, this and there's this i think it's yeah, one of the dutch professors here up dijksterhuis he's also writing about that is let your conscious and your subconscious work together where consciously rationally you're very good in gathering information in looking at the complexity in in yeah really gathering all kind of relevant information but it's far too complex for your rational part, your conscious brain to make the decision. So let your subconscious do that. And that's the way I, yeah, we, we, we make our decisions. Um, it's also the way I work with clients where in a strategy process, we have a couple of interactive sessions and those sessions are really meant, they're kind of group interviews is all the ideas, all the issues, all the insights that are there are collected. Then I kind of sit on them for a while uh, and and then patterns will pop up. And I think that's also going back to my research um, background. It's how you do inductive research is you gather lots and lots and lots of rich information. So you really immerse yourself into, into a context and then the patterns will pop up. So if you trust that and trust also your subconscious part to work with you, I think you can make very complex decisions or can make a very nice structured story picture from what seems to be chaos to your, your client. Yeah, so that's, that's, I think that's the way I, rational preparation and then very intuitive decision-making. 
Um, I think you'd get on with my my mother very well. She has always <laughs> said to me, think, 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 and then go to sleep. And when you wake up in the morning, you'll know what's the right thing yeah. to do. Um, exactly. You know, you've provided the scientific explanation for um, what she's always yeah. taught me. The main challenge, if you are quite rational, is don't try to explain why it is the right decision, because then you're off. Then you're probably making the wrong decision. And I also know that part, I'm good at making that mistake as well. So that's <laughs> how my, my wife's helped me sometimes to uh, to make decisions. Uh, don't overthink them um, because then, yeah, then you, you try to use your, your rational brain, which is like, it's, it's still very in its early age. You know, the rest of your, your, your brain is much older and much more mature than uh, than the rational part. So I'm um, thinking about, you know, the future, which is very difficult to predict and why would we want to anyway, because mm -hmm. we're, we're making it every day. Um, I know you've done a lot of um, thinking and you publish a lot on leadership. Um, what do you think are going to be the key traits that leaders will need to um, display walking into that future? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of, and of course I've, I've written posts about this and not trying to kind of reproduce one of those now, but it's actually something that I've been writing on just as I mentioned before our, um, our conversation is the importance of being vulnerable or daring to be vulnerable rather than humble. Um, I think there's lot, lots of talk about humble leadership because we're kind of sick and tired of the the, uh, the 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 dictators, the top down, the directive uh, type of leadership, and we want our leaders to be the opposite. So they should be humble and, and invisible. And but I think that's not the real trade because humble leadership can still kind of be this egocentric leadership because you want to be seen as humble. And so it's still about you. And I think vulnerable leadership is much more important because. It's also authentic leadership because you, you're you you you're trying to be yourself, including the not so good things. Maybe you try to be honest. You don't hide mistakes. Uh, you, you you and that thing that requires a lot of courage, a lot of openness. Um, because I think people like to work for or with a leader that's also a person and that they can relate to. Um, so I think that that's one of the things I find very important. Uh, it's probably a very incomplete answer to your question, but that's the first thing that pops up because I've been working on that just today. And thinking about um, part of that future is obviously the climate crisis. And we talked earlier about, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the challenges of travel in terms of the climate and a whole host of other things. In your work, how do you think um, effective organisations are approaching those questions of sustainability and regeneration in, in their strategy and execution? Mm -hmm. I think first, lots of, of organisations are not doing this effectively. Uh, that's I think that's the main, the main issue. I think the ones that do do this effectively really look at the core of their business. And this also relates to 
the way I look at strategy and even the way I define strategy. For the me, for me, strategy is a company's or an organization's unique way of sustainable value creation. So in my approach, in the very definition of strategy, there is this word sustainable. And the way I mean this is not just planet proof, but also sustainable from a commercial perspective, uh, from a strategic point of view and so on. But if that's the core, if sustainable value creation is your core and not competitive advantage, growth, profits, and so on, then you at least start with the right attitude, the right mindset, because it's about contribution. It's about thinking, who is this for? Who's the customer? Who's the, you know, who's the target group? How do I create value for that customer? So how do I solve a real problem? How do I really help them? And how do I do that in a sustainable way, which means I take into account um, the interest of different stakeholders. I take into account the limited resources, the boundaries of our planet, and so on and so forth. So I think the companies that are doing this right are really challenging the core of their business. And they go way beyond what the average company do, does. And I think the main problem that I see with many leaders, organizations, is the radical mindset shift this requires. Because you really have to challenge, and this is something I try to practice in my, my, my private life since quite a number of years. And I know how difficult it is and how long a road it is. Because up to, like before COVID, I still thought traveling was normal. Um, COVID kind of changed that, but much more the climate crisis um, changed that. I also thought that shopping was normal. Um, well, when you think about it, is go to a city just for the activity of buying stuff. It's one of the strangest and stupidest things we can do, but it's still think the majority of people still feels that is a normal activity. So you, the more you think about it or the more you the, the more progress you make in this the more you're you're challenging what you thought was normal a year ago or a week ago or two years ago and that's a, a very slow process i've experienced and that's just ourselves in a private in a private life so for an organization uh, really rethinking everything whether it's 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 what what's in, what an office is? How you deal with your with your with your coffee, with your cards, with your customers, with your products, your services? Everything is um, is different if you look at it from a uh, yeah, sustainable society perspective. So it's maybe two in, in short two answers is really look at the core because you make most impact with your products and services as a company, and radically rethink everything you're doing and do that in a step-by-step -step way because you can't if you if you remake the picture up front retire uh, because it's just too daunting too much um, but start and then and i've seen this happening with um one of my clients is two years ago sustainability was something like okay yeah so be it uh, like ha 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 uh Okay, we, 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 we won't print that much anymore. Um, and now, two years further, of course, society has changed as well. It's, it's much more on everyone's 
agenda now, but also there, their mind, at least the at the at the board level, their mind has changed. They see the urgency, they see the importance, and it has moved from a, a topic that I had to basically push into their strategy to something they now uh, pull and and ask can help us do more and and raise the bar. I find that really interesting because I I think um, some of the organisations that I work with are still in that uh, that first camp uh, in the sense that they might have you know a sustainability role within the organisation, mm. um, but the strategy um, of the organisation is entirely disconnected to that concept of sustainability, um, there, and there, there may be value creation within the strategy, but it's not mm -hmm. linked to sustainability. And one of the areas that I work in is workforce and workforce strategy. And if you think about mm -hmm. workforce strategy, sustainability is a massive goal. Um, you know, there's been this huge um, problem with talent shortages. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, some a lot of that is driven by the fact that organizations don't think about their workforce as a living organism that needs to be sustained and fed and regenerated. Mm -hmm. um, they think about it in quite a capitalist mindset. You know, they'll it's a always, human resource. Absolutely, human resource. <laughs> they'll always be uh, <clears throat> more people. There'll always be money to buy. Um, you know, and we'll always need to grow. And actually, um, it, it's it's really the the opposite. It's more about how do you maximize um, the people that you have, and how do you grow them in the ways that are going to continue to be valuable for your organization and your purpose. But mm -hmm. it's not fashionable or cool um, to do a whole lot of thinking at a strategic level about that. It's much more a kind of individual leader challenge is to grow your people and to coach your people and to recruit the right people and to get rid of the wrong people, um, which is mm -hmm. a very transactional kind of level of leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think also my, my field strategy is quite interesting and also, this is something I've written a couple of posts about is the idea of employee-centric strategy. So you basically flip the entire company 180 degrees. And rather than being customer-centric, you're employee-centric. So what happens if you see your employee as most important stakeholder as or as your primary customer? So what's your value proposition as a company for your employees? How do you create unique, sustainable value for your employees? I think that's something I do see changing, um, at least at some some companies, also including some of my clients. Also, because from the market perspective, getting clients is easy, um, but getting, as you meant, talent shortages, getting people, and also getting people that are interested um, in working with you, uh, they, their their demands are different than fifty years ago. Uh, they want to contribute. They want to see what you're doing in terms of sustainability. So also in that sense, I'm quite optimistic. So whether everything happens on time, I don't know. But I do see quite a change in mindsets, maybe even more from a young employee perspective than from a customer perspective. But either way, from both sides, and even also from an investor perspective, uh, you see that let's say the, third, the early adopters are there the early majority is kind of starting to take shape, I think. And once that's, uh, I think, moving on, then things can go quite fast.
So if, if I'm optimistic, I think that's the way I, I'd like to look uh, to look at this. Um, and one last question, because I think we're almost out of time. Um, I just wanted mm -hmm. to ask you about your views on generative AI, um, because in the consulting business and in the, you know, the strategy um, learning business, you know, there's a there's a whole lot of opinion out there about the challenges or the opportunities um, with generative AI. And I wanted to, to gauge your views. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know whether my views will be very valid um, because I'm 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 a bit of a layman in this in this respect. Um, I think one of the the things is 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 it some some still see it as a hype, um, like it will blow over and it won't affect us. I think we're beyond that, and I think Chat GPT has shown us the reality of what generative AI really can do. And also, I was quite shocked. So I, I put in my entries and quite shocked about the answers, uh, about the quality of the answers. I think it will um, it it will change uh, a lot of work. And also with one of my clients, it's an accounting firm. We're currently looking at how will that adjust. I don't think it will replace a lot of work, but it will will adjust. Also for my own work and then related to especially copywriting, writing posts. That part, ChatGPT is, is incredibly good at. If you give a clear um, instruction, what you want, uh, that's what you get. And I think with, with pictures and, and, and animations, the same. If you give a very clear instruction, generative AI can do a lot of the work. I hope that people will use it in a way that they're still using their own ideas, imagination, um, because I think there's a, there's a lot of value in that, not just for the output, but also intrinsically. And that's what I, when I use, after I've tried to work with ChatGPT also with some of my posts to see what, what's the answer. But if, if, you, if I would just rely on it, it becomes such a boring, meaningless activity because then it's just producing content. And for me, what makes it meaning, meaningful is uh, I, I find a way to express my ideas and to get in touch with other people. So I think if you manage to use it in in a in the right way, I think it can be really take off some of the burden. Um, because who cares in the end who has written exactly the sentences that you <laughs> that you write or who has exactly created the picture? Yeah, I don't know whether that's a good answer. And maybe I, I change my mind two weeks from now. Um, <laughs> and it will replace entire industries. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's a, it's a useful technology. And like with every technology, you can use it uh, for good and for bad. Um, and that's why I think it's good that there is uh, there are concerns about this, that there's even this big group of experts saying, okay, let's pause development for a while. And first, make sure legislation and society is ready for this. I think, but we'll we'll find a way to uh, to deal with it. I'm not 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 afraid of that. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with all of that. I too have played with it, and what I found is it might give some of the factual answers, but it doesn't help with the judgment, with the voice, with you know bringing your personality to your content. And in the mm -hmm. end, you know, people can find their facts wherever they um, wherever they look. Oh. 
but a lot of people engage because they want the color that you add because of your personality, because of your voice, because of your experience. And that yeah. can't be replicated. Um, by it can be replicated once you have, like in my case, if I, I have many posts out there, so you can feed that into some generative AI and it creates something like, uh, like what I created before. But the whole part, I think I want to do things differently. And I think that creative part where you want to deviate from what's out there, that's so far still a human activity because whatever form of AI, it still uses what's out there. So it's always pattern-based. It always creates something along the lines of what is already there. And that might look incredibly creative, uh, but it's always a, a reproduction or a, a refinement or a change, a further um, iteration of what is already there. And yeah, where you, where you really want to bring in new perspectives and think that's that's still so far, I think more human contributions that we need. Uh, it's you in the past. It's not you in two weeks from now when you have a new Yeah, idea. because I don't even know what, what my thoughts are at that point in time. Um, well, listen, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Um, I think we could probably do uh, a discussion just on strategy, just on sustainable value creation. Um, I know that you are developing um, your course um, on um, strategy and I look forward to seeing how that develops so thank you very much for your giving us your time and your thoughts you're welcome thank you very much for uh, for having me here thank you so much for listening and thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests the stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.